0: Here were two men, their businesses were flourishing. I'm sure they were on top of the world. And they probably would have laughed at you if you told them that a year, year and a half from now, your business is going to be destitute. And though I don't know anything about their personal lives, one thing I do know about all men is that there's something quite perplexing that goes on in our innermost being when our business, or our jobs, or our livelihood is threatened. Welcome to Reliable Truth with best-selling author Richard E. Simmons III. And now your host, Richard E. Simmons III. I presentation to you this morning by reading some words from an article that was in the Wall Street Journal last Tuesday. <coughs> Forced to take a buyout from the Kansas City Star last summer, Paul Winsky lost his sense of identity. I'd been an investigative reporter all my life and then boom, says says Mr. Winsky, an award-winning journalist of 30 years. Suddenly you're not the same person you used to be. You look in the mirror and you ask, who are you? The deepening recession is exacting punishment for a psychological vice that masquerades as virtue for many working people. The unmitigated identification of self with occupation, accomplishment, and professional status. This tendency can induce outright panic as more and more people fear loss of employment and as more and more companies go under. You know, it was kind of interesting. For about two months, I was uh, working on a talk that I titled, a very fascinating talk, by the way, on the legitimacy of of the Bible in an age of skepticism. And I was going to deliver it this morning. But then I changed my mind for a couple of reasons. Uh, The first reason was, about six weeks ago, I opened up a section of the Wall Street Journal. And there were two separate reports of men who had taken their lives because their businesses had failed. Now, I'm very sensitive when I talk about the issue of suicide because I realize we all have been touched by it. I know I have. My life has been. But I think this this is quite interesting when you think about this. If you go back 18 months ago, here were two men. Their businesses were flourishing. I'm sure they were on top of the world. And they probably would have laughed at you if you told them that a year, year and a half from now, your business is going to be destitute. And though I don't know anything about their personal lives, one thing I do know about all men is that there's something quite perplexing that goes on in our innermost being when our business or our jobs or our livelihood is threatened. Something happens to us. Now another reason I decided to change my talk this morning was because of an email I received about three weeks ago. It was from a man that I consider very successful and a man who I think had a good bit of wealth. And I want you to listen to what he says in this email. Richard Permit me, if you will, to ramble about some recent discoveries I've made in my personal life. Like many in our country, I've been incredibly dismayed over the last six months about the enormous depletion of value in the stock market and the real threat of recession waylaying my business and the business of many others. I've spent many anxious hours in sadness and worry over the tremendous loss of wealth and the loss of future business to opportunity, <clears throat> at least in the short run. As a Christian, I've had to ask myself, why am I in such turmoil when supposedly <clears throat> life in Christ, is Christ, but, my tr- but in my true reality, life to me is money, affluence, and financial security. My faith has been uncovered and found to be very flimsy, and really of no account in terms of my contentment. I've asked myself, what is really so troublesome inside of me about losing financial security? The answer has come to me recently. In truth, having to live without lots of the trappings of wealth, such as travel and entertainment and security, is not really the biggest issue, although this is very disappointing. The real problem... And fear inside me comes because I worry that without all my wealth and privilege I will not be considered a man. My feeling of manhood is found in all the trappings of wealth. And I think what I just read, what you see here, is a picture of a man who has taken a good hard look at his life and made an honest assessment of what he sees about himself. And what he said strikes right at the heart of our identity as men. Now, I think one of the best illustration that talks about this identity crisis that we suffer, and I've used this before even though it's been a a couple of years, is, is Arthur Miller's famous play death of a salesman you want to pull Prize surprise for this in 1949 and if you know anything about the play it's also made in a movie with dustin hoffman it's the story of willie Lohman, an insurance salesman and he's been seeking business success all of his life he's always trying to impress he's always trying to be a big shot in the sight of others but the problem that most people aren't aware of is he has a very dysfunctional family, marriage. He's not very, really very successful. In fact, he, in his work, he's, he's somewhat, I guess what you'd call, mediocre. And finally, at the end of the play, he gets fired from his job and is forced with the reality or faced with the reality that his life has not been successful. And he's shattered by it. And at the end of the play, he takes his life. But this is what's so telling. Right at the end of the play, his wife asks their son, Biff. She says, Biff, why did he do it? Why did he take his life? And Biff's response is quite revealing. He says, he had all the wrong dreams. He had all the wrong dreams. And he didn't know who he was. He didn't know who he was. And these two lines from the play, I think Miller reveals what plagues the modern male. He spends his life pursuing empty dreams, but more significantly, he doesn't know who he is. In other words... He doesn't understand the forces in his life that drive him. He doesn't know where he gets his significance or worth as an individual. He doesn't understand his fears, his stress, why he can't sleep, his sense of aloneness. So many of us lead the life that Thoreau described as a life of quiet desperation that no one else is really aware of. And I don't want to get too far out there. But have you ever given much thought as to how you define and measure your life as a man? You see, most of us define ourselves by what we do, or who we know, or what we own. That's who I am. That's how I define myself. And so you can see how this creates great confusion in our lives, particularly when there's so much economic turmoil going on around us and our circumstances and our businesses are so fluid and there's so much uncertainty out there. It creates confusion. It creates confusion about masculinity and about identity. There was a wonderful book that I think addresses this identity confusion that we experience and I highly recommend it. It's called Season of Life. It's by Pulitzer Prize winning author Jeffrey Marks, and it's quite interesting because Marks, what he does is he follows two guys who coach a football, a high school football team somewhere up in the east, I think it's in Maryland, and he follows them around for a football season because they have an unusual reputation and an unusual approach to coaching football because they're not interested in winning games. Their focus is teaching on these young high school boys how to become men. And it's quite fascinating. And in the process, they win a lot of championships. They win a lot of football games. And so he just follows them around and observes them and writes on what he sees. And there's a part in the book when Marx is interviewing one of the coaches, a guy named Joe Erman. Now, Erman, you may be familiar with because you may have seen him in the news. He's been in People Ma- uh, not People Magazine, Parade that you come in your Sunday paper, about the work that he does. He does a lot of public speaking. He was an all-pro defensive end with the Colts. And Marx was was interviewing him. And Ehrman tells Marx about how men's identities are so messed up. Because we have a false view, what he calls false masculinity. We have a false view of masculinity. In fact, it's interesting. This is what uh, Ehrman says. As young boys, we're told to be men or to act like men, he said. But once you start getting close to adolescence, you get that verbalized pretty quickly. But this is the problem. That in this society and in most homes, it's never defined. We've got all these parents saying, be a man to boys that have no concept of what that means. Most of the fathers don't have any grip on a definition, so how could the sons possibly know what's expected of them? Joel told me about a simple exercise he often does is when he's directing a men's conference. He'll have a big group of men like this. He says, I'll hand out a note card, and I'll ask the participants to do one thing. (laughs) Write out your definition of masculinity. And he says, most men, he says, it's like deer in the headlights. He says, they are completely dumbfounded by the question. He says, they're clueless on what to write down. He said, they really don't write anything at all. Or it ends up being a definition based on some kind of functional or material thing, like getting a good job or something like that. Joe says, if you don't get some kind of clear, compelling definition of masculinity at home, then you're pretty much left at the mercy of this society and the messages that are going to speak to masculinity and manhood. And personally, I think he's on to something. And I also would say, I think this is how most of us have developed our identities as we've grown up in this life. And it's a very dysfunctional identity. And what's interesting is often it doesn't really come to the surface real visibly until you run into a storm, or encounter a storm like we're encountering right now out there in today's economy. Now I was reading about a very interesting counseling session between psychologists Chris Thurman and a client of his who's in the real estate business. Listen to this. This is really interesting. I haven't closed a deal in months, said Ted, who is a real estate salesman. Things were rolling along fine in his life until the real estate market tanked. Because he was depressed and he couldn't shake it, he came to see me. We we keep dipping into all of our savings and investments to get by. And that can't last forever. He sat hunched over his knees, his hands massaging his temples. So how does, that, how does doing that feel, having to draw down on the money that you've saved and invested? He stopped, sitting straight up. I can't stand it. I've never been so depressed. I'm nor- normally an up kind of guy, but this has never happened to me before. Before the real estate market went bad, how did you feel, I asked. He sat back in his chair. He said, oh, I felt great. I felt terrific. So your happiness and self-worth seem to have gone up and down with the market, I observed. Well, I guess you could put it that way. Okay, well, let's stay with that thought. You feel good about yourself when things are going well. So does that mean you're only as worthwhile as your performance? Well... You know, I don't like looking at it that way, he said. But is it true? Yeah, I guess, he mumbled. I mean, I know I feel a lot more worthwhile when things are going good. I want to focus and think about what he said in that very last sentence. It's huge. He said, I feel like my life is of much greater value when my business is going well. You see what this culture has done to us? It's created in us an obsession with performance. And we have somehow gotten confused here. We've somehow gotten personal achievement confused with our value and worth as people. And I think many of us have come to believe that we have about as much worth as we earn out in the marketplace. However, guys, this view of life can devastate you. I don't know how many of you remember the story of Kathy Ornsby. She was a track star. She was an honor student. She was soon to run in the NCAA Track and Field Championships. It was held in Indianapolis. She was a pre-med honor student. And she ran track at North Carolina State. And she was... The number one runner in the ten thousand meter. In fact, she was the collegiate record holder. Was supposed to blow everyone away on the on the track in this event in the finals. But during the race, something quite unexpected happened. It says Kathy fell behind and couldn't seem to catch up. It was a huge upset. She lost the race. And in a startling move, she ran off the track out of the stadium to a nearby bridge and she jumped off. And she fell 40 feet and was paralyzed from the waist down. You know, if we equate our worth as a human being with our performance then any type of perceived failure on our part can easily lead to the conclusion that my life is not worth very much. And I tell you what's interesting, guys. And I got this from Dr. Tim Keller. That almost, and there's almost universal agreement on this with cultural analysts, is that if you go back in history and look at more traditional cultures and more traditional societies... Back then, a person would get their identity and their meaning through family and fulfilling a societal role, like being a son, being a husband, being a father, being a grandfather. He says work was not near as important. Work was a way to provide for your family, but it didn't define your life. And this is why Keller says that we, listen to this, is quite fascinating. We are the first culture in history, we're the first culture in history where men define themselves by performing and achieving in the workplace. He says it's the way you become somebody. It's the way you feel good about your life and your worth. And he said for this reason, there has never been more psychological, social, and emotional pressure out in the workplace than there is right now. We're right in the midst of it. Now, let me make a couple more comments, and I want to talk about what do we do about this? How do we deal with this in our lives? But I want to first make sure we really understand what I'm talking about here. You know, every single one of us, we get our identity We get our sense of worth from somebody outside of ourselves. Somebody out there telling us who we are. You see, each of us lives out our lives before an audience. An audience that we allow to determine our identity. And we allow them to determine how well we're doing in life, how successful we are. They're the ones that define it for us. In in essence, what I'm doing is I'm allowing this audience define who i am and whether i measure up as a man and i yearn for their applause i yearn for the approval of this audience <clears throat> i need them to validate my life as a man but the question is who is this audience who is this audience that's so important to each one of us well charles cooley who uh very, very prominent sociologist who lived, uh, born in 1866. He died in 1928. He he came up with a, a famous theory that's called the looking glass self. And this theory remains very valid today. And in its simplest form, the theory goes like this. A person gets his identity in life based on how the most important person in his life sees him. I want you to think about that. We get our identities based on how the most important person in our lives see us. Now for a child, of course, that's their parent. You know, they look out at this world and the parent is the most important person in their lives. That's why it's so important for parents to love their children, to encourage their children, to build up their children. You don't realize what it does to a kid when they're always being torn down and and criticized over and over by their parents. But as most of you know, Over time, as they grow up, as they become teenagers, you no longer are their number one audience. Their peers become the audience. They value their peers' opinions more than anybody else's. And that's why this term peer pressure, the the idea of peer pressure is such a powerful force in the life of a teenager. But you know, it really doesn't change. For when we become adults, particularly when we're out in the marketplace, the people's opinions of us us, that we value the most are also our peers. The men and women out in the workplace, out in the community, that's the audience. It's as if we allow them to make the final verdict on the value of our lives. And the problem, however, is the verdict is never in. Because our performance is never over. You know, no matter how much applause, no matter how well you've done in the past, are you going to receive it tomorrow? Will it be there for you tomorrow? You see, what I see happening is many men have performed so well over the course of their lives and they've experienced incredible success. And yet for the first time, they're experiencing something they've never experienced. Because of this economic tsunami that we've encountered. So many men are beginning to realize the applause of the audience is fleeting. And so what do we do about it? How do we complete? You know, in one sense, you have to completely reorient your life and identity. If you're going to truly be liberated and free to live your life as a healthy human being, as a healthy man. So how do you reorient our lives so that economic hardship doesn't shatter and devastate us? Because you know what, as we look out (coughs) on the landscape, we have no idea what the next few months, the next year, two years, holds. We have no idea. You have the bears who say, we're going to have the worst depression we've ever had. Then you have the optimists. We want to believe the optimists. But there's so much uncertainty out there. It causes so much fear. And we wonder, who am I? We wonder, what's going to become of my life? What's going to become of my family? Well, let me tell you how I think you, we, we need to start as far as dealing with this in our lives. The starting place is a recognition of it. It's a recognition that, like Willie Loman, we've built our identity on how well we perform and how well we have won the approval of others. And it's almost as if, guys, we have got to recognize that we have a radically unstable identity because of that. And you know what I find? It's, sometimes it's hard to look reality in the eye. But we have to do that. I have contend we have to realize that there is something terribly wrong with our lives and with our identity. That's where it starts. Tim Keller has a great illustration that talks about this approach to life and how, dev- how it devastates and how to deal with it. But he really talks about the importance of us recognizing there's something wrong with us. He says, have you ever noticed that you never think about your toes? I mean, think about it. All you this morning, you got up, you got dressed, you came here, you ate breakfast, you're sitting here. I wonder how many of you have thought about how good your toes feel. He says, we don't think about our toes. He says, the only time we think about our toes is that there's something wrong with them. We attend to our toes like if you've had a broken toe and you had to hobble in here this morning, you're thinking about that toe. He says, you know, there must be something terribly wrong with our identities because we're always noticing how we look in the eyes of others. We're always yearning and trying to impress others. We want to hear their applause. And then he says this. It's fascinating. He says, the ego is constantly drawing attention to itself. He says, if your identity was healthy, like your toes, you'd never notice it. You wouldn't be aware of the audience and their applause. Now, a second thought I have, I ask you to consider the issue of legacy. Legacy. In fact, this is going to be the theme of this retreat. The Legacy We Leave Behind, the retreat we're having in April. St. Augustine said this was so important to consider the legacy we leave behind. It's so important, he says, to help us think maturely about life. Peter Drucker, who I think is probably one of the greatest business consultants to ever live. I think he died last year at the age of 92. He said, thinking about his legacy early in life is what shaped him so profoundly. Listen to what he said. He said, when I was 13, I had an inspiring teacher of religion who one day went right through the class of boys and asked each of us one question. What do you want to be remembered for? None of us, of course, could give an answer. So he chuckled and said, I didn't expect you to be able to answer it. But if you can't answer it, by the end of your days, you will have wasted your life. We eventually had a 60th reunion of that high school class. Most of us were still alive. But we hadn't seen each other since we graduated. And so the talk at first was a little stilted. Then one of the fellows asked, do you remember Father Flegler and that question that he asked all of us? Many years ago, we all remembered, every one of us, and each one said it had made all the difference to him, although they didn't really understand that until they were in their forties. Drucker says, I'm always asking that question. What do you want to be remembered for? It's a question that induces you to renew yourself because it pushes you to see yourself as a different person the person that you can become. He says it causes you to not look at what you achieve, but what kind of man you're becoming. And there's a huge difference. Guys, once we realize that we'll not be remembered for what we accomplished or what we achieved or how much money we made, it'll change us. It'll change us. You know, I think this is what enabled, most people don't realize, this is what enabled Drucker to turn down Goldman Sachs, who offered him the position of chief economist a number of years ago. It was a position that would have paid him a huge salary and would have really thrust him into the limelight internationally. But Drucker had a very healthy identity. He knew what he wanted his life to be about, and so he very easily said, no thank you. So, the question this morning as we close up and we need to ask ourselves is <clears throat> how do we get there? How are we delivered from this addiction to performance where we're always seeking to please this audience who gives us our, our sense of worth and identity? How are we delivered from that? Well, remember what I said. All of us get our identity from someone outside of ourselves. We let someone else tell us who we are and what our lives are worth. But what if we let that person, the audience, be God? Think about this. The scripture is very clear. The God of the universe is saying to each one of us this morning, I am the one who gave you your existence I gave you your very being. You're here for a reason, for a purpose. And I have a plan for your life. A plan that is meaningful. That is abundant. That is full. In fact, we're told in Psalm 139, this is such an important verse to me, we requested and had it read at my dad's funeral back in November. God says, I saw you before you were even born. And all the days of your life have been ordained and they are written in my book. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. And this is what's interesting. In Ephesians 2.10, it says, we are his workmanship. And that word workmanship comes from the Greek word poemo, which literally means work of art. Your life is of incredible value. Because we are God's work of art. You see, our worth as a person has to do with your value, how valuable you are. And it's not based on what you do, but it's based on who made you. Think about it. Why do people pay millions of dollars for a masterpiece painted by Rembrandt? <clears throat> you know, you could get any artist in our community to, to take a who's really good. Take a Rembrandt and they could reproduce it. It looked just like the Rembrandt. <clears throat> and you might pay 1000 dollars for it. Why? Why pay a thousand for that when and the and the Rembrandt costs millions? It's because of the artist. The artist gives it its value. And this is why our lives are of such great worth, because each of us is his work of art. We are his masterpiece. And the great demonstration of our incredible worth and value to the God of the universe as that He sent His Son, Jesus, into the world. Because in Christ, in the incarnation, <clears throat> God was saying to every single man in this room this morning, you matter to me. I love you. I'm willing to die for you. And when a man can get this truth into his life, it will transform his identity. Remember what Charles Cooley said in his theory of the looking glass self? A person gets his identity in life based on how the most important person in his life sees him. What do you think would happen to a person's life if Jesus Christ was the most important person in his life? If He was the audience that we all sought to please, what would it do to our lives? It would transform us. It would change us. It would deliver us from all the fear, all the worry, all the anxiety of who we are. Because Jesus thinks you're wonderful. And He has a great plan for your life and He is committed to you and your well-being. But I will say this: He doesn't really care near as much about business success as we do. He compare, he 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 um he's concerned about more about us as men and who we're becoming, the kind of husbands we are, our character, our wisdom. I was listening to a lecture given by <coughs> Arthur Donald Miller. It was given to a large group of students at Harvard. And he was talking about some of the things we're talking about this morning. And listen to what he said, I quote. He said, human beings are wired so that they need some great authority outside themselves to tell him or her who they really are. But for many people, that voice is just not there. Because their lives are not oriented towards God. When that is the case, the very first thing that will happen in their lives will be to question their worth and their value. Does my life really matter? And he says, this is what causes us. This is very interesting. And by the way, I'm probably there will be a part two to this session that I'll probably do in March. He says, and this is what causes us to begin to hide ourselves from others. We put walls up around our lives and we won't let anybody in. We'll take that up next time. I want to close <clears throat> by considering the life of a man who I think really had his act together. Whose life was truly grounded. Most people don't know about him. They know who he is and they know about his intellect but they don't know about his life. And I'm talking about C.S. Lewis. You know, most of my Christian life, I've been fascinated by his writings. In fact, I'm rereading for the second time his book, The Screwtape Letters. But in the last few years, I've had the opportunity to read several books about his life, about the man, the man behind all those brilliant books. And I have to tell you, I was very impressed with the quality of his life. He was an amazing man. He really was. <clears throat> but one of the reasons he was so together was because Lewis understood his true identity. Armand Nikolai wrote a wonderful book about his life, comparing really his life to Sigmund Freud's. And Nikolai is a psychiatrist who teaches at Harvard Medical School. And he studied Lewis's life extensively. And he says, as a psychiatrist, let me tell you why this man's life was so together. He says, Lewis had been an atheist for over 30 years, and then he became a theist, and then he became a Christian. And he says, what happened in Lewis's life? Lewis began to study the Scriptures voraciously. And he said, as he did, and these are Nikolai's own words, he recognized the mean of establishing his true identity. Lewis called it, coming to terms with his real personality. He said, A person does this by losing his life in relationship with God. In other words, this is what Lewis says, I quote, Until you have given yourself up to Him, you will never find your true self, and you will never find your true identity as a man. He came to this realization through Jesus' own words when Christ says, Whoever loses his life for my sake... He will find his life. He will find his identity, his true identity. And what Lewis recognized, if you're really going to find your life, and if you're going to live it to the fullest, you have to give up your life. It's a great paradox. You have to surrender it to him. In other words, guys, by giving up what he's saying, you gain. By giving up, you gain. I love what Tony Campolo says about these paradoxical words of Jesus. To find your life, you've got to lose your life. You have to give it up. He says it's the key to eliminating confusion in your life. He says that it is commitment to Christ and the plans that He has for us that we discover who we are and what our lives are all about. Now, to close this up, I want to read you some words from a guy by the name of Peter Moore. Moore was an Episcopal priest. I think he's now retired. He founded that wonderful seminary, Trinity Seminary, uh, that I think a number of you uh, remember Paul's all left Birmingham to go and I think be president. and He was there for a couple of years. And Moore wrote an interesting, really really wonderful book called Disarming the Secular Gods. <clears throat> and he shares about his, his thoughts and reflections on returning to Yale for his 25th, Reunion. His words are are very pertinent to what I've said this morning. He says, Returning to my 25th reunion at Yale, I watched as Mercedes Benz's disgorged prosperous-looking members of the class of 1958 and their wives at the gates of the old campus. The program announced that former classmates were preparing to tell the rest of us about the lessons they had learned climbing ladders to success. Wandering along familiar campus pathways that evening of the reunion, two questions weighed heavily on my mind. Had I been a success? And the second question, what is success? What is true success? The occasion, redolent with nostalgia, demanded such questions be asked and answers at least attempted. After all, what had one to show for all that expensive education after a quarter of a century? I tried to be as honest with myself as I could, I refused to take easy refuge in pat answers that, after all, I had started this and done that. While I was thus musing, suddenly I remembered that a friend who was a rector of a nearby church had invited me to join him and a handful of parishioners for their customary 5 p.m. evening prayer. So I hurried across campus to St. John's and took my place as the service opened. Still very troubled by the questions I couldn't shake from my mind. We came in time to a familiar part of the service recorded in Luke 2 where the aged Simeon picks up the Christ child in the temple and blesses the child with the words, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Listening to these words, I felt a quiet assurance settle in my soul. All the anticipation of wise old Simeon's many years found joyous fulfillment in one moment's realization that there there in his arms was the long-awaited Messiah. Such was the sense of completeness that this knowledge gave him. He was now ready to depart and die in peace. In the quiet of that service, I discovered what real success was. It came to me quietly, but very clearly, that the only thing worth calling success was coming to the knowledge of God and being able to behold Him in the face of His Son. It seemed to me a knowledge so profound and yet so simple that it made even the smallest accomplishments of great importance when they are done in its light. What do you think it really does mean to be successful in this life? I think that's a question we probably all have been asking over these last few months, maybe the last year, as we look out in the future. You know, I'm, I've wondered, You know, if a man loses his job or his business goes under due to circumstances he has no control over, Does that really mean he's a failure? You know, that seems to be where we are in this culture. And so what I've realized, guys, this morning is that we're all faced with a choice. We're faced with a choice. We can continue to allow this world to define who we are and what our lives are worth. Or we can relinquish our lives and our identities And we can be grounded in Christ's love for us and in His commitment to our lives and to our well-being. It's a choice. You know what? As you read the Scriptures, this hit me really powerfully yesterday. You know, God is always confronting Old and New Testament. He is always confronting us with a choice. You have to choose. And then you have to live with that choice. And as I sit here before a large group of businessmen, I was reminded of of Joshua's words when he confronted the people of Israel and he confronted them with a choice. And I think, this is my opinion, if he were standing before us today, this comes from Joshua 24, I think he would confront us with very similar words when he said, Choose for yourselves today. The God whom you will serve. The God of wealth. The God of prestige and power. The God of pleasure. The God of achievement. And then he says this. But as for me and my family, we are going to serve the Lord. It's so important to understand, guys, as we leave here today, that each and every one of us must choose the God we're going to serve. And then we have to live with the consequences of that choice. Let me pray. Lord, we realize how easy it is to live this life and get caught up in this performance trap where we're addicted to the opinions of this audience out there and we live our entire lives trying to prove something to them, that we're somebody. And yet, Lord, you've called us to relinquish, to let go, to give up our lives so that we can gain them. I pray that's what each of us would consider this morning. To let go. To give you preeminence in our lives. That you would be the audience that we would seek to please. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to Richard at 3com